The book of Judges is one that um, there's kind of a few characters that many people know about. A lot of people, of course, know about Samson. Uh, he's a famous judge, of course, known for his strength and a uh, very fun one to do children's church on. You have uh, the story of Gideon as well. That's pretty, pretty commonly known. But there's a lot of stories in the book of Judges that um, don't get as much time in Sunday school. And to be honest with you, it's a good thing. Because the book of Judges is really not a very pretty book. It's recording a period of about 400 years in Israel's history, which they did not have a king, and everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. It was basically spiritual anarchy. And you had this vicious cycle where the children of Israel would begin to worship idols. And so God would judge them by allowing foreign armies to invade and to oppress them. Uh, some points they took away their weapons, they made them pay taxes, uh, they would steal their food, just generally making life terrible for them. And this would go on for a number of years before Israel would finally repent and God would be merciful and God would raise up a deliverer, someone to rescue them from their bondage. And that deliverer was called a judge. So not like a courtroom judge we think of, but more of a, a military leader and a civilian leader combined into one. But as we look at the story of most of these judges, we find that they were very, very flawed individuals. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, there's a couple stories there that are just, uh, really, they're hard to read. They're just, they're so awful in what, what happens and some things that are done by people who are supposed to be spiritual leaders in Israel. And it's sad, and it leaves you kind of depressed. And it leaves you wondering, is that really the best that we can do? And I think that was kind of the point, is that, that these judges really did represent the best that Israel could do at the moment, but every one of them wasn't good enough. And it leaves us longing for a judge, for a deliverer, who's much better, who's far greater. And ultimately, that is to point us to Christ. Because He is the ultimate deliverer. He is our Savior. And so we've looked at uh, a number of judges thus far. And last we looked in Judges chapter 11, we looked at the story of Jephthah. And Jephthah, um, let's just say he was an unlikely candidate to be a judge over Israel and in his story, we read about how he made a very rash vow to God. He was going into battle and he told the Lord, if you will give me victory, then the first thing that comes out of my house when I come back, I will give to you as a burnt offering. And so he comes home and who comes out of his house first but his one and only child, his daughter. And sure enough, he follows through on that rash vow according to verse 39 of of Judges chapter 11. And so this was this Jephthah who was leading Israel at this time, who was treating the creator God of the universe as if he was a heathen God who had to be appeased by human sacrifice. And this morning we're going to pick up in chapter 12 and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. There's actually several judges mentioned here 
in chapter 12, but the, uh, some of them only get a few verses. Uh, but in the first seven verses, we read about a story that happened in Jephthah's, during Jephthah's judging of Israel that I think is very instructive for us if we will be honest and admit that what we see in this story, we all struggle with from time to time. Look at verse number one. It says, And the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and didst not call us to go with thee? We will burn thine house upon thee with fire. And Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon, and when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. And when I saw that you delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are you come up unto me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead smote Ephraim, because they said, Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. And the Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites, and it was so that when those Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, Let me go over, that the men of Gilead said, Art thou an Ephraimite? If he said, Nay... Then said they unto him, Say now, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. And there fell at that time of the Ephraimites forty and two thousand. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite, then died Jephthah the Gileadite and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. I want to preach to you this morning about Ephraim's terrible temper. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us as we study your word today. We know that these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, uh, that we might um, know how you would have us to act. We might be in obedient, obedience to you, the instructions that we find in your word. So Lord, help us to see in this this bad example of the Ephraimites, the danger of being prideful and being angry and allowing our tempers to get the best of us. May we have peace and may we be peacemakers for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Judges chapter 11, we find this story that apparently occurred pretty short time after Jephthah had led the Gileadites in victory against the Ammonites. And it records how that an entire tribe of Israel, the tribe of Ephraim, got mad. They got mad because they felt slighted. And they decided that they were going to get revenge for that perceived slight. However, in doing that, all they did was ensure their own destruction and their own demise. Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this story in Judges chapter 12 illustrates that truth so well. Notice with me, number one, Ephraim's tantrum. Ephraim's tantrum. 
Now, Ephraim was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. We have to go all the way back to the end of the book of Genesis to find the origin of their tribe. But Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And those two sons became the two heads of two whole tribes in Israel. Now, we know that Israel had a total of 12 tribes, and some of you may be wondering, well, why didn't... The math doesn't add up here because uh, um, Jacob had 12 sons, and if one of the 12 had two sons, that's 13. Well, remember that Levi, that tribe did not get a specific possession in Israel. And so you had this split possession uh, between uh, Joseph's son. And one of them was Ephraim. So all that to say, if you kind of put it in a perspective today, uh, they were kind of like a state as we know it today. So we have uh, the state of Georgia where we reside, uh, or North Carolina as the case may be, or wherever you may call your home state if you're visiting with us today. Uh, but then next to us we have South Carolina, we have Florida, we have Tennessee, we have North Carolina, and then we have Alabama, but we don't talk about them very much. And so you have, you have all of these, uh, all of these tribes that live close to one another, share all these borders, and those were kind of like the states. And so, uh, so Jephthah belonged to, technically, uh, to the tribe of Manasseh, um, but he was kind of seen as an outcast by everybody, as we'll see in this story. Well, when he led the Gileadites, which Gilead was a city, and so it was the people from that city and that area particularly that went to fight. The Ephraimites, after the battle was fought, after the victory was won, said, hey, wait a second. How come you didn't let us come and fight with you? And they got mad. And verse number one tells us that they gathered themselves together. They went northward. So they traveled up to where Jephthah was. And they said to Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and did not call us to go with thee? Why didn't you call us to go fight? They felt slighted. Now, they were not upset because they didn't get to fight. They were upset because they didn't get to share in the spoils of war. They were upset because Jephthah won and receiving, was receiving the praise and the accolades and they were missing out. And so what were they going to do? Well, the most logical thing ever, according to verse number one, burn your house down with fire. That's what they said they were going to do. We're going to burn your house down with fire. Now, what's interesting to note is that this is not the first time this kind of thing has happened in the book of Judges. Turn back to Judges chapter 8. Judges 7, we read the story of Gideon and his victory against the Midianites. And after that victory... Judges chapter 8 and verse number 1 says, The men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou callest us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. So this is the second time that these, this same tribe of people, different group because we're a few generations later, but the same tribe of people said, hey, wait a second, how come you didn't call us when there was a fight? We wanted to come, what'd you leave us out for? Now, in the instance with Gideon, Gideon was able to calm them down and smooth the situation over. It didn't result in wholesale slaughter. Unfortunately, that's not what happened in the story of Jephthah. But we see this trait that's now recurring in this tribe, what 
is going on? What is the problem here that they would get so upset to the point of declaring war against their own countrymen? Well, the answer comes down to a very simple word, five letters, P-R-I-D-E, pride. They were prideful. And their pride had been hurt because now Jephthah was getting all the praise and all the glory and all the accolades from having led the people into victory against the Ammonites and they were getting none. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Only by pride cometh contention. That is a great principle to remember in life. Anytime you're in a contentious situation, when there's a falling out, when there's an argument, when there's a, uh, this uh, spat and a disagreement and a fight, somebody is guilty of pride, and usually more than one person. Because at the, at the, at the root of all contention, according to Proverbs 13.10, is a spirit of pride. That spirit that says, I deserve better You deserve worse. That spirit that says, I'm better than you. I'm better than you're making me out to be. I'm better than you think I am. And so on and so forth. This spirit that says, I am better. Spirit of pride. Ephraim had their pride hurt because they didn't get to go to the battle. And so they decided that they would take it out, their frustration out on Jephthah and the Gileadites. They come to him in chapter 1 and said, you didn't call us when you went into battle, so we're going to kill you. But notice number two, Ephraim's timidness. Jephthah responds in verse number 2 by saying, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon, and when I called you, ye delivered me not out of their their hands. Now here we find something that's not recorded earlier, the fact that Jephthah actually did invite the Ephraimites to come and fight. He said, I called you, but you didn't come. You let that call go to voicemail. You said, oh, that's Jephthah. I bet he wants us to fight. Not doing that today. I called you, you delivered me not of your hands. And so verse 3, when I... When I saw that you delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are ye come up unto me this day to fight against me? So apparently they had had a chance, but they refused to come. But now they wanted to share in the victory. Why would they refuse to come? Why would they then want their share in victory? I think this is a wonderful illustration of just human nature in general. We want to do as little work as possible and get maximum results for it. You know, everybody wants to work a part-time job doing a low-level, low-skill work and get paid like they were working 80 hours a week as a lawyer. You know, that's that's just human nature. I'm reminded of the story of the little red hen from the Golden Books. How many of you know that story? I wish we could put that in the hand of every five-year-old in America. Because in the story of the little red hen, the little red hen decides she's going to grow some wheat. And so she goes around to all of the other animals in the, in the barnyard and asks them for help. 
And she asks the cat, will you help me plant the wheat? Not I, says the cat. Not I, says the dog. Not I, says the pig. Not I, says... And all the animals said, nope, we're not going to help you. And all through the stages, at every stage, she appeals to them to uh, help her with growing this wheat. And they all say, nah, we don't want to help you. But then it comes time to harvest the wheat. Now, nope, don't want to help you. It comes time to grind the wheat. Nope, don't want to help you. But now comes the time to eat the bread. And all of a sudden... Who will help me eat the bread? I will, said the cat. I will, said the dog. I will, said the sheep. And they all show up because they want to take their share in the spoils, but they weren't willing to give any energy or any effort, any work to lead up to that. And that's what's happening here. They had their chance, but they refused. Why would they refuse? Well, to go into battle meant a certain element of danger. There was risk involved. They were going to have to go and they were going to have to fight probably hand-to-hand -hand against trained soldiers and the, there was a possibility of injury or death and so they declined. I think you, you just have to conclude that their problem was cowardice. They were not willing to take the risk. They were afraid. Notice what Jephthah did. First of all, he set the record straight. Now, this is an instance, while Jephthah was not the kind of guy we want to pattern our life after, in this particular instance, he was in the right. The first thing that he did is he set the record straight. He said, now, wait a second. I gave you a chance to come, and you declined. They had said, you didn't let us come. He said, no, you were the ones who decided not to come. He was in the right, and so he first he set the record straight. Let me just encourage you this morning. If you're in the right... If you know the truth, speak the truth. It's okay to set the record straight. We do not have to sit quietly by while, while lies are running rampant. And so, he first of all, he set the record straight. No, this is what actually happened. You wouldn't come. So then, I put my life in my own hands. I and my people, we stepped up and we did what we had to do. And the Lord delivered them, the Ammonites, into my hands. So the second thing I see that he did right is he gave God the credit. I like that. I like that he said specifically, the Lord, Jehovah God, He is the one who gave us the victory. He didn't claim the victory for himself, but he said, God gave me the victory. He set the record straight. He gave God the credit. And then number three, he stood his ground. He didn't back down from them because he was in the right. He said, wherefore are ye come up unto me this day to fight against me? Why are you coming here to fight against me when God gave me the victory and when you were the ones who refused to come? And he stood his ground. I say good for Jephthah. I say he did what was right here. He had no reason to back down from these Ephraimites who were just throwing a temper tantrum. They were upset because their pride was hurt and now they wanted to take it out on him because Jephthah was making them look bad. So obviously, take out Jephthah and they'll look better. We've seen Ephraim's tantrum. We've seen their timidness. But notice number three, Ephraim's taunt. He stood his ground. Why are you coming up to fight against me? And verse 4 says that Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim because they said... Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. So here's what happened. So the order is kind of flipped around here, but when 
Jephthah answered them like he did, Ephraim pressed the issue. They said, no, we're coming after you because you're just a bunch of fugitives anywhere. Anyway, you don't belong in Ephraim. You don't belong in Manasseh. You don't belong to anyone. You're just a bunch of outcasts anyway. We're coming after you. And the Ephraimites pursued battle with Jephthah and the Gileadites. Now, at this point, I have to ask the question, what did they hope to gain from this? What possible positive outcome could have resulted? There is none. All they were doing was venting their frustration in the worst way imaginable by causing a civil war, literally. They pressed the issue. They could have avoided tragedy if they wanted to. They could have wised up. They could have stepped back. They could have calmed down. They could have gone home and 42,000 of them would have survived. But that's not what they did. They pressed the issue. They said, no, we're coming after you because you're a bunch of fugitives anyway. Who do you think you are is the idea and the attitude that seems to be behind it. There's another verse in Proverbs that says, Surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. So the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. I love some of those verses in Proverbs. They're so picturesque. The churning of milk bringeth forth butter. All right, how many of you, be honest, you have actually at some point in your life churned and made homemade butter? Raise your hand. All right, a few of us. Very good. So you get this illustration. For the rest of us, before butter was on a shelf at the store, somebody actually had to make it. And the way that butter is made is you take milk, you start with milk, and there's some, some process involved in getting it prepared and separated and everything out. And once you have the cream that's ready for the milk, you take that and you basically just agitate it for a long time. And as you agitate the cream from the milk, the fats will begin to bind to one another, and what you're left with is the butter. So through the agitation, you get butter. But then Proverbs has an even better illustration. It says, The wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. I'm not going to ask if you've ever done that. That's I don't want to know. But you can get the picture here, right? Somebody were to grab you by the nose and just twist and hold on and not let go, eventually that nose is going to start bleeding. Now Proverbs says, like churning milk brings forth butter and like wringing the nose will bring forth blood. If you force wrath, you're going to bring forth strife. It speaks of a continual agitation, a refusal to stop, a refusal to let go, a refusal to step back. If you continue down that path, strife is going to happen. There's going to be a fight. And it's not going to be pretty. That's what Ephraim did. They they could have listened to what Jephthah said and and said, you know what? You're right. (laughs) We could have come. We decided not to. We're just going to go home. But that's not what they did. They said, no, we're coming after you. They forced the wrath. You know, there are a lot of times when 
we get into, we'll just call them disagreements with people. That by our own foolishness and our own stubbornness and our own pride, we make the matter way worse than it has to be. Simply because we force the wrath. We won't step back. We won't calm down. We won't say, you know what, it, it, you know, let's just agree to disagree. No, we're going to force the issue. And the result is never pretty. It takes a humble person to say, you know what, you're right. Why are those words so hard for us? To just look at somebody that we've been arguing with, they make a good point, and we know in our mind, yeah, they're right. But we go to say it, and we're like, it's just hard to get it out. Why? Pride. We don't want to admit when we're wrong, and when we say, you're right to someone we've been arguing with, that means we're wrong. And so we would rather force the wrath. And then we're frustrated and surprised when the strife comes. Their agitation brought about retaliation. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 29, 22, An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Ephraim would not let up. And that ultimately led to Ephraim's tragedy. Roman numeral 4, if you're keeping an outline this morning. Ephraim's tragedy. So this battle ensues and the Ephraimites are being beaten very badly so they start to retreat but Gilead gets behind them and cuts off their retreat by taking the ford of the uh, river of Jordan there, the passages of Jordan. Maybe there were some bridges more, or more than likely it was just an area where it was pretty shallow and they could easily get back across but the Gileadites are cutting off their retreat and now the Ephraimites who are trying to escape, they get to the Jordan River, they've been beaten badly by the Gileadites and now the retreat's cut off. They get there and they, they want to go home. They want to pass over. And so maybe they were pretending. Seems like in this case they were, maybe they had thrown aside their armor and their weapons and they're just pretending like they're common travelers and they get to uh, the, the river and they, they say, can, can I go home please? <laughs> let me go over, they say in verse number 5. But the men of Gilead were not about to let the Ephraimites escape without being duly punished. And so they devised a system to find out if these men were really Ephraimites or not. And it involved the pronunciation of a particular word. Notice what they did in verse number 6. They said unto him, that is if it was an Ephraimite, the Gileadites would say to him, Say now Shibboleth. So this was a word that they just asked them to pronounce the word. And he said Sibboleth for they could not frame to pronounce it. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. So apparently, because of their local dialect, there was a little bit of a difference in pronunciations. And the Ephraimites had never learned to pronounce that S-H sound. Instead, it would come out as a plain S, a S sound. 
And so it was a simple test, say Shibboleth, and if they couldn't say Shibboleth, they said Sibboleth, they're like, oh, you're an Ephraimite. I hate to be blunt, but that's what happened. I had to laugh when I was studying for this. Um, I never knew there's a commentator from the 1700s named Matthew Henry. Have you ever heard of him? You've heard of Matthew Henry, yeah. I never knew he had a sense of humor. After all, he did live a long time ago. But I had to chuckle when he, when he was talking about this. He said they couldn't pronounce it to save their life. <laughs> I don't know if he meant it as a joke, but I found it pretty funny. They could not frame to pronounce it right, verse number 6 says. And so the result was that 40 and 2,000, 40 and 2,000 died. They lost badly. Their retreat was cut off. And the result was devastation. This tribe would have been reduced to almost nothing for a long time to come. It was going to take them a long time to rebuild from this. All because they lost their temper. All because their pride got hurt. Their ego was bruised. I think about this story, and I think there's some helpful lessons that we can learn from it. I think the first lesson we can learn from this is the importance of being a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The problem with being a peacemaker, it's actually a pretty boring lifestyle. Who gets all the attention in our world today? Who gets all the clicks? Who gets all the likes? Who gets all the shares? Who gets all the ratings? Is it the people that are gathering opposing parties and sitting them down together and saying, let's work this out? Is that, is that who our world is promoting today? No, because that's pretty boring. You know what's exciting? You get this person from this side of the argument against this person on this side of the argument, you put them in the same room, and then you let the sparks fly, you know? Everybody wants to see a good fight. And there are professional agitators out there that are literally making a living by keeping trouble stirred up. Yes, I believe that is happening literally. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that is going on in our government as well. That's a whole other message. But as people of God, we're called to be peacemakers. We're called to reconcile people, not stir up strife and stir up trouble. Be a peacemaker. Look, when there's potential for discord, don't make it worse. Try to make it better. You hear something bad about somebody? Let it stop with you. Don't be another gear, another cog in that machine of gossip. You be the person where gossip comes to die and eventually you only have to worry about it because they won't bring you anymore. Be a peacemaker. 
not a troublemaker. That's what Ephraim was doing. They were looking for a fight. They literally came picking a fight. And look what happened. Devastation. And as a, as a Christian, being a peacemaker is so important. Think about this as it relates to the gospel. Because what is the message of the gospel? It is how sinners can be reconciled to God. It is a message of peace. It is a message of how to uh, make it right between man and God. And the, if the world sees us as, as Christians just constantly stirring up strife and trouble, and then we say, but let me tell you how you can have peace, don't you see the disconnect there? We're to call people to be, to be at peace with God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. If we are believers in the gospel, then we ought to practice what we preach. Be a peacemaker. Another, another principle that I think this story illustrates very well is don't envy other people. Don't envy other people. Let other people enjoy the fruits of their labor. They've worked hard, and now they get to enjoy the benefits of that. Don't envy them. Praise the Lord that they get to do that. I know what our, our, that our, our sinful flesh gets irritated and says, well, how come they get this and that and they get to do this and that and I don't when we see other people getting some good thing that we're not getting we think well I deserve that too well maybe you do and maybe it's coming or maybe you don't because you didn't put in the effort that they did don't envy other people be content with what God has given you here's the thing the Ephraimites were already enjoying the blessing of Jephthah's victory because now the Ammonites were gone and so they were already enjoying the blessing of it, but it wasn't enough for them. They wanted more. And the only way they could get more was by taking it from Jephthah and his people. They were envious. Hebrews tells us that we need to take heed and beware of covetousness. And we need to be content with such things as we have, because God has said He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Don't be jealous. Don't be envious. Don't be covetous of what other people have. Be content with what God has given you. And it's okay to rejoice when other people are blessed. Here's another principle that I, I think of. Be willing to help or be willing to be left out. But don't try to play the middle. That was what Ephraim did. They didn't want to help, but now they're mad because they got left out. Look, if you're given the opportunity to help in any sphere of life, whether we're talking about ministry, we're talking about home, we're talking about work, where, wherever, and you decline, you say, no thank you, for whatever reason. Sometimes you wish you could do something and you legitimately can't. That's fine. Sometimes you just don't feel like it. Well... Check your heart. Maybe that's not a good thing. But if you're not willing to help, then be willing to be left out. Be willing to say, you know what? I didn't help, so I'm not going to get the credit. I'm not going to get the glory. I'm not going to get the benefits. I'm not whatever. 
But don't be the one trying to play the middle, who's always wanting to reap where others have sown. And then finally, and I think this is probably the big lesson, simply this, be humble. Be humble. I know this isn't a popular message, but I'm going to say it because it's true. It's not about you. It's not about me. There's more and more important things in life than just you and me. Ultimately, at the very top, the glory of God. That's what it's all about. And we filter down from there. And we have to understand that life is not all about us. There are other people that God has put in your life. Family, in particular, that I think of. That to you, they should be more important than you. Their needs and their wants should take precedent over yours. What does Philippians 2 tell us? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Be humble. 1 Peter 5, verse number 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Be humble. Because only by pride cometh contention. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you this afternoon, I thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to humble Himself to come and die for our sins so that we might be saved, so that we might be made at peace with you to be reconciled. And Lord, as followers of you, I pray that we would demonstrate that same humility and desire for peacemaking in the way that we live. Whether it's in the context of marriage relationship or parents to children, brothers and sisters, whether it's in the neighborhoods and the communities we live in or on the job or even in the community as, as a whole and our involvement in various ways, Lord, whatever sphere of life that we find ourselves in, Lord, help us to be humble. Forgive us when we have forced issues and forced wrath and it's resulted in strife and devastation. Forgive us when we have stirred the pot and been that source of agitation. Lord, I pray that through us, others would see a good example of the message of the gospel the message of peace. Lord, help us to be firm in our stand for the truth. Help us never to apologize for it or to back down. But may we speak the truth in a right spirit. A spirit of humble confidence that is pleasing to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.